We all have life pursuits. Some people are boat people, some people are car people, but one of the most public and iconic pursuits of the last 25 years is Tom Brady's pursuit of Super Bowl rings. And indeed, he has amassed a lot of them. Tom Brady has played in 10 Super Bowls, and he has won seven, almost twice as many as the next closest competitor, Joe Montana, who only has four. Brady is, by all accounts, the greatest quarterback to ever play the position. He has pursued glory and fame through his football career and continues to this day as he's starting this season at the age of 45. But in a 2006 interview with 60 Minutes, after winning his third Super Bowl, Brady had this to say, Man, I'm making more money now than I thought I could ever make playing football. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? It's got to be more than this. Now, at that point in his career, Tom had found money, he had found fame, he had found women, he had found wild success in one of America's most popular sports. But his sentiment raises a question for all of us. What are you pursuing? What do you hope will bring you ultimate satisfaction and joy? For Brady, the, the pursuit of Super Bowls continue. But our text this morning from the book of James highlights a vastly different pursuit for the Christian. Namely, James exhorts us to pursue true wisdom, which is our main point this morning. Pursue true wisdom. Please turn with me to James chapter 3 as we look at verses 13 through 18. As you're turning there, I want to offer one brief caveat this morning. James chapter 3, verse 1, begins with an exhortation about leadership. There James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Our first verse this morning, verse 13, highlights those who are wise and understanding among us. So James is particularly targeting leadership here, but that is because James wants the whole church to examine themselves. In many cases, the church is a reflection of the leadership. And so if you can hit the leadership, you can hit the rest of the church. So don't sit back and just think, well, this is not for me. But this is James's vision or his goal for everyone who is a Christian. And so with that, let's jump into our text. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our first point this morning is that true wisdom esteems God overall. True wisdom esteems God overall. 
And now I particularly want to focus on one little word in verse 13, and that's meekness. Now, in our day and age, if you ask people what meekness is, you will probably get the picture of Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers. According to Hollywood, meekness is a grown man pretending to be another grown man who plays with puppets. But according to the Bible, meekness is defined as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Meekness is a posture of the heart. And if Fred Rogers was meek, it was not because of his soft, soothing voice and his calm, quiet demeanor, but it was because of how he viewed himself. A self-perception that is consumed with one's own importance cannot be meek, no matter how mild or gentle it is. And if meekness is fundamental to wisdom, as we see here, then we have a serious problem because the default condition of every human being is that we are overly impressed with ourselves. The meekness of wisdom is evidenced, that is shown when we esteem God above all. Now think of Moses for a minute. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Moses is described as very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. After this description, Moses sends the spies into the land of Canaan. And the spies come back faithlessly and despairing because the size and the number of people in the promised land is so great that they don't believe God's ability to bring them into the land. And in chapter 14, the Lord tells Moses that He will destroy the people of Israel. It's written, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Think about this for a minute. How would a self-seeking, self-promoting individual take that promise? The Lord is telling Moses that He will clear the deck, that He will elevate Moses even higher and make Moses Himself into a great and mighty nation. Think about what that promise entails. It entails sovereign power, a great name that will be revered throughout the whole world. It is the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. Think of what people today would give to get that. All of the fame, all of the fortune, all of the power. How would you respond if you were in Moses' shoes? But Moses' response shows us why Moses is considered the meekest man on earth. Listen as you hear his prayer and ask yourself, what is Moses concerned about? This is Numbers 14, 13 through 16. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give to them that He has killed them in the wilderness. 
Moses is not concerned about himself. He is not concerned about his own inheritance. But Moses is concerned about the greatness and the glory and the fame of God. Moses is concerned that the destruction of Israel will make the Lord look impotent and incompetent before the nations on earth. And Moses does not want anyone to have room to denigrate God or to boast over God. But that's not all. Look at how Moses continues. Moses prays, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is concerned about the glory of God, but here Moses is also concerned about the people. He intercedes on their behalf and prays for God to pardon their disobedience, to pardon their faithlessness. Moses is calling for God to be glorified in showing mercy to this rebellious people. Moses' meekness esteems God above all. But look at Moses' concern for the Israelites. The Israelites are stiff-necked and rebellious. The Israelites have caused Moses nothing but trouble and heartache. And here Moses intercedes on their behalf before the God of the universe. Here, in the example of Moses, we see true meekness. Meekness esteems God above all and neighbor more than self. Meekness is understanding God's place, God's holiness, God's glory, God's righteousness. And you cannot see this without you yourself being humbled into the dust. To encounter God is to know our own frailty, to know our own dependence, to know our own sinfulness. This is meekness. And this is why meekness does not just impact our relationship with God. Meekness is a way of life that esteems God such that it transforms all of our relationships with other people. If we humble or if we are humble before the Lord, we will be humble before other people. And if we are not humble before other people, we have not been humble before the Lord. One more example of meekness to drive home this point. And this is the supreme example of meekness, Jesus Christ. Jesus declares Himself to be meek and lowly in Matthew 11. But the Apostle Paul really helps us to understand what this means in Philippians chapter 2. Paul exhorts the Philippians in, in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's exhortation is simply an exhortation to meekness. Consider others more important than yourselves. And the supreme example of this is Jesus Christ, which is where Paul goes next. He writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To effect our redemption, the Infinite One took on our finitude. 
the all-glorious One veiled His glory in human form. The all-powerful, all-wise Creator of all things stepped into His creation, took on a he created human nature with all of its limitations. The One who is life in Himself embraced death for His people under the just judgment of God. The Son never ceased being fully divine. But He took on our human nature and was simultaneously fully God and fully man because such was the sinful state of humanity that only a God-man could affect our salvation. In His humanity, Jesus Christ esteemed the will of God. He set His face toward Jerusalem like flint. He submitted to God unto death, even drinking the cup of God's wrath for His people. Brothers and sisters, look at the meekness of our beloved Savior. He could have called legions of angels down to rescue Him, abandoning us to destitution. But He esteemed the will of His Father. And out of love for His people, He was tortured and crucified by unrighteous men. This is meekness par excellence. And brothers and sisters, this is where we are confronted with our own lack of meekness. Unlike Jesus, we were not esteemers of God. We have lived for self and we have gloried in the pleasures of this world and the flesh. And all of our self-exalting labor earned for us the wrath of God that Jesus Christ had to bear. Jesus was crushed by God because that is what we deserved from God. Do you see it? Do you see it? Next to the humility and purity of Jesus Christ, do you see your own self living for self and the stain of sin? And does it humble you? We were not basically good needing just a little bit of help. We were, we were vile sinners before a holy God and we needed God to accomplish our entire redemption beginning to end. And Christian, He did. When He cried, it is finished. That was the accomplishment of our redemption. Nothing could be added and nothing can be taken away. And the proof is that God raised Him from the dead after three days, verifying Christ's testimony and sealing His glorious work of redemption. This, this is the foundation of our meekness. And this is the beginning of wisdom. That we see our own sinfulness. That we see our own need for redemption. And that we see that the only sacrifice, the only solution that can make these things right is Jesus Christ, the righteous, crucified for us, the wretched. And here we recognize that we do not deserve to be esteemed. Anything good about me, anything good about any of us is only attributable to the work of Jesus Christ. And in this, we are freed to do good. Not to earn our salvation or as a reason for boasting, but because, brothers and sisters, who among us can give more than we have received? Who among us, after we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, can seek the glory of man? The glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ is ultimately what confronts us with who we really are and how valuable the Lord of the universe is. And this confrontation decentralizes us. 
It tears down any notions that we may have of self-grandeur and it supplants them with the grandeur and beauty of God. It reorients our lives, our priorities, and it changes how we view people. People are not objects to be used for self-gratification, but to be loved for Christ's sake. People, men and women created in the image of God, and those who embrace have embraced the Gospel of Jesus Christ are our brothers and sisters. Meekness is the reorientation to love and serve the body of Christ because the body of Christ is the centerpiece of God's redeeming work. It is the mantle of His glory. And because of this, we reject jealousy and selfish ambition because who am I that I should seek my own glory? And that is our next point this morning. True wisdom rejects jealousy and selfish ambition. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. But if we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The flip side of saying that we esteem God is asking ourselves the question, do I reject jealousy and selfish ambition when they pop up in my heart. The heart is the seat of our thinking, feeling, and acting. It is the center of our inner life. We learned a, a, a few months ago from James 3, 1-12, through 12, that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. But here, James is pushing us deeper. He's getting at the secret intentions of the heart, and he is hammering on our motives and fundamental desires. James would ask us this morning, do you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart? Do you have negative feelings toward people because they possess something that you do not? Do you, Christian, covet someone else's spouse because they are better looking or more mature or more easygoing? Do you, Christian parent, covet someone else's children or the fact that someone else even has children? Do you covet someone else's job or home or education? Do you covet someone else's status or the recognition that they receive? Friends, I don't know your heart. And jealousy is hard to see in someone's speech because very rarely do we come out and just say, I'm jealous of so-and-so for such-and-such. But God knows. Jeremiah 17, 9-10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We may be able to hide our motives and our intentions from one another, but we cannot deceive God. If we are full of jealousy and selfish ambition, and we say that we are wise or somehow posture ourselves as spiritually mature, James says that we are exalting ourselves over the truth and that we are lying. We are like the bad guys in the movies boasting about all the things that they have gotten away with. It would sound something like this. You know, I look like a great Christian man, and everyone in my church sings my praises, but I've got them all fooled. Jesus may have been the most meek, 
But I am the best at lying about my spiritual state. When we are filled with jealousy and selfish ambition, and we posture ourselves like we are the incarnation of Christian virtue, we're hypocrites. Christian, no one is, good enough, is, is a good enough liar to deceive God. Not even Satan, the father of lies, can pull one over on the Lord of truth. And that is why James tells us not to boast. But he would exhort us to be honest with God, to be honest with one another. Now a second reason that James calls us to reject jealousy and selfish ambition is because they are not neutral. They aren't just hanging out in our soul trying to mind their own business. They're not just strolling around enjoying the scenery. But jealousy and selfish ambition have their own aims. They themselves have goals because they have an origin. Look at verse 15. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly or worldly is opposed to the wisdom that comes from above. Earthly means pertaining to the current course of the world or to the spirit of the age. As we look at the world's communication, Instagram, Facebook, podcasts, what would the world hold up as wisdom? Across the board, self-exaltation and comfort. Whatever will get you the most money, the most fame, the most sex, the most leisure, those are the wisest things that you can embrace. And when we are filled with jealousy and selfish ambition, when our hearts are set on worldly wisdom and worldly gain, the wisdom of Christ, which tells us to die to self and to pursue glory and hope in God, is utter foolishness because God does not appear to be that valuable. James digs into this further by calling this unspiritual. The idea of unspiritual is getting at the distinction that Paul highlights between the flesh and the spirit. This, this unspiritual is connected to the flesh. In fact, Paul categorizes both jealousy and selfish ambition as works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. Unspiritual, in a sense, views this world as the end in itself. This is all that there is. It's the sort of, of idea of let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Our highest good and our greatest joy is only what can be found under heaven. When we give way to jealousy and selfish ambition, we are orienting our lives as though this world is the ultimate reality. And friends, in that we have embraced functional atheism. This is why James can call them demonic. This is characterized by the same things that characterize Satan. And Satan's entire goal is to destroy you and to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. This is the origin of jealousy. This is the origin of selfish ambition. And they are oriented towards satanic ends. They are not neutral, but they are seeking to ruin you and the bride of Christ. Jealousy and selfish ambition exist in our hearts to make us miserable and discontent. But their goal is to use you to make the church miserable and discontent. Which is where James goes in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. We see this in the world, don't we? We have all had the experience of working in an environment where everyone is using everyone else for the sake of personal advantage and selfish gain. This is true of the world, but how sad is it when this is true of the church? 
Leadership that is filled with selfish ambition for church growth and a bigger platform and a bigger salary and a bigger following. A hunger for more people and more money all used for the ego at the top of the organization. Congregants all competing with one another about who can have the nicest looking family or the most well-behaved kids or come to church the most put together. This is the situation that James is writing into. Listen to how James describes this in in chapter 4. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Battle is chaotic. And when we feel like we are in battle, we can justify all sorts of reprehensible behaviors to gain an advantage over our opponents. When we are exalting our own self-importance, we all become competitors and the church becomes our field of battle. But brothers and sisters, when we together exalt the glory of God in Jesus Christ, when we together esteem His importance, when we link arms with one another as a band of pilgrims seeking our shared inheritance in our true homeland, we're not competitors. We become co-laborers. We become servants of one another. And the church becomes like a beautiful garden sanctuary full of good fruits and the harvest of righteousness. And this is where James is heading. But I want to hit the pause button for a minute and apply the passage so far. Jealousy and selfish ambition are all motivations that we face. None of us can say that we've never had a jealous thought or that we have never acted on selfish ambition. But Christians, we must fight these things. We must seek meekness. We must esteem God and we must reject jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. And so I ask, have you given safe haven to jealousy, to selfish ambition in your heart? Or a little more pointedly, can you pinpoint something over which you are jealous or someone that you are jealous of? Does your life evidence jealousy and selfish ambition in a constant pursuit of and pining for more and more and more? Are your friendships, are your relationships characterized by your own pursuits? Is your life and career goal characterized by the constant pursuit of more and bigger and nicer? Are we inviting demonic wisdom into our church and into our families? To the extent that we are living our lives under the sway of jealousy and selfish ambition, we are inviting chaos and vileness into every relationship that we have. Life is not a zero-sum game focused on the accumulation of wealth and success. Life is meant to be lived to the glory of God for the good of His people. But we only get this perspective from God Himself, which is where James takes us next. Look at how James starts, verse 17. But the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above. That's our third point this morning. True wisdom comes from God. True wisdom comes from God. 
Contrary to earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, true wisdom is not indigenous to fallen man. It's from another kingdom, namely from God Himself. James has been weaving together this thread of our need for God's intervention throughout the whole letter. Think of chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The existence of wisdom is not due to our cleverness or our intelligence, but to the generosity and goodness of God. But we must recognize that we lack it, and we must ask Him for it. James 1.17 Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Again, the character of the gift is not based on the one who receives it, but on the one who gives God's wisdom is good because God Himself is good. God's wisdom is valuable because God Himself is valuable. God's wisdom is free to us because God is abounding in grace and generosity. Last one, James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. Meekness is connected to true wisdom in James 3. But here in James 1.21, meekness is connected to our reception of the Word of God. The wise man does not spurn the Word of God, but humbly receives it because he recognizes the surpassing excellence of God's wisdom. Meekness is esteeming God above all. And if we esteem God above all, we will receive His Word. The wise man embraces all that God has revealed about human sin and depravity and the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Receiving God's Word is part and parcel of true wisdom. True wisdom comes from God and we seek it in His Word. One could even say the foundation of wisdom, the foundation of wisdom is that we esteem God above all and therefore receive His Word. And we rejoice that our God is not a monster. We rejoice that God is not standing over us holding these things out, but will never give them. Our God is gracious and generous to provide to us. He is graciously provided us with salvation. And here He promises to graciously provide us with wisdom. But we must humble ourselves before Him. James says later on, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. James calls his readers to humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. True wisdom comes from God. And Christians, we receive this wisdom by humbling ourselves before Him. Confessing our jealousy, our selfish ambition. Confessing our coldness of heart. Confessing our sins to Him and asking Him for forgiveness. Asking God Himself to give us wisdom. To open our eyes to be able to read and understand and apply His Word. Asking God to give us a heart that desires to know Him. A heart that hungers for Him and esteems Him. To ask someone for something is a humbling thing. Because in it, we're confessing our neediness. But Christian, everything you have is from God. And true wisdom is found only from God Himself. And true wisdom is not something that we can be proud of because it is God's gracious gift. 
If you, like me, find yourself this morning wanting more wisdom, take heart. Our God delights to give generously. Our God is not stingy. He is not an exacting taskmaster. God does not withhold from those who seek Him. So call out this morning. Call out on the Lord and then pursue true wisdom. And Christian, it's all found here. The knowledge of God is accessible to us right at our very fingertips if we would only take up the Word of God and read it. Take it and read. Pursue true wisdom by pursuing God Himself through His Word. And God will teach you. God will show you how valuable He is. God will show you how glorious He is. God will show you the beauty of our redemption in Jesus Christ the righteous. And we have to, but we have to ask, we have to seek. And not just once. Open your Bible and then pursue God like your life depends on it. Keep going back. Keep going back. And it will change everything. Because true wisdom produces holiness in us. Which leads us to point number four. True wisdom produces holiness. Look at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When Moses beheld the glory of God, his face became radiant. It literally shined forth light. So too, Christian, when we behold the glory of Christ in the Gospel, when we embrace true wisdom, we are transformed into His likeness. The the Gospel of Jesus Christ, true wisdom produces fruit in us. First, it produces fruit in us as individuals, but it also produces fruit in us corporately as the communion of saints, the church. When we as a community esteem God, when we as a community love one another, when we as a community reject jealousy and selfish ambition and seek the wisdom that comes from God, the fruit of that wisdom is produced in our midst. The fruit of that wisdom is produced in our relationships. Contrary to worldly wisdom, which produces chaos and every vile thing, the wisdom from above is First, pure, it produces purity and holiness. Now, holy living is to reject the works of the flesh, things like sexual immorality, sensuality, jealousy, sorcery, things like these. But holiness is not mere moralism. Holiness is a heartfelt devotion to and love for God through obedience to His Word and love for His people. Let me say that again. Holiness is a heartfelt devotion to and love for God through obedience to His Word and love for His people. When we embrace true wisdom, the fruit of holiness springs forth in our life and creates an abundant harvest of righteousness. Now James describes this fruit, peaceableness, which is striving to live in harmony with one another. Not destroying each other as was happening in the church that James is writing to, but that we would strive to be right with one another and live in peace with one another. Christ died to create peace between us and God. We therefore ought to strive to live in peace with one another. Next, true wisdom produces gentleness. Gentleness is the rejection of being exacting in our relationships. 
That we would not hold one another to an unattainable standard, but that we would be forbearing. That we would be gracious. And that we would be quick to forgive when we have been offended. True wisdom makes us open to reason. This is that we don't jump to conclusions about each other, but we wait to hear all sides before making any sort of judgment. That we would not be divisive over small points of doctrine, but that we would love one another because we know that we are fundamentally loved by Jesus Christ. True wisdom makes us full of mercy and good fruits. Again, that we would love one another and care for one another, sharing resources with those in need and caring for the sick and the downtrodden in our midst. True wisdom is impartial. That means that it does not show favoritism to people who are like us or people who we identify with. But true wisdom sees all people as created in the image of God and therefore seeks their good. And finally, true wisdom is sincere. That is, it is not hypocritical. It is not duplicitous or two-faced, as James says in chapter 1. True wisdom is honest and stands on actually held convictions. It is unwavering and forthright. True wisdom tells it like it is. This is the fruit that is produced in the life of the Christian when we pursue true wisdom. But think about a community. Think about a church characterized by such people. People who are together pursuing true wisdom. People who are evidencing purity, peaceableness, gentleness, openness to reason, being full of mercy and good fruits, impartiality and sincerity. James describes this as a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The picture portrayed here is like, it's like a garden sanctuary. A sanctuary where the peace and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ reigns supreme because His people are in submission to His Word. And indeed, that is what the church is supposed to be. The church is the gathering of the saints. The community where God's redemptive purposes are being worked out in our lives as He continues to call His people to Himself from the four corners of the earth. And as we commune with one another, as we share the love and mercy of Christ with one another, brothers and sisters, we are partaking of a small taste of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. The glory of heaven is not streets of gold, but it is the person of Jesus Christ. And as we gather together, He promises to be with us in our midst. And when we are pursuing Him and we are pursuing true wisdom... and we are pursuing the, the person of Jesus Christ together, His image becomes more clear and more clear and more clear as we ourselves are conformed into His image more and more and more. True wisdom gives us a taste of paradise because it comes from the One whose presence is paradise. Christians, as we seek Christ together, linking arms in in this journey through this sin-ridden world, let's make true wisdom our pursuit. Let's seek to exhort and encourage one another in these things. And let's pray for one another that there would be a harvest of righteousness in all of our lives. Jesus says that they will know we are His followers by our love for one another. That love for one another is only found as we pursue true wisdom and evidence the harvest of righteousness it produces. And so, one final exhortation. Pursue true wisdom. 
Set your mind and heart on knowing Christ Jesus and ask Him to make you wise. Knowing this, that true wisdom esteems God above all, rejects jealousy and selfish ambition, comes from God, and produces holiness. And if you're with us this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, please find someone to ask about this, someone who's been on stage, me. We would all love to discuss the hope that we have in Him. But finally, brothers and sisters, be encouraged that our God is with us and that our God generously gives to all who ask. Please pray with me.